0: Yep, okay there. Yo, and I'm definitely a geek. You know, unlike many people in the tech podcasting world, I don't have too many problems with iOS 11. I mean, it's definitely buggy in places, but on the whole, I like it. But one area that's been really driving me crazy are the bugs in Apple's Notes app, also called the Memo app in Japanese. You know, I use Apple Notes for keeping track of links and show notes and stuff I want to talk about on the podcast. It's great to be able to just kind of throw stuff in there as I see it throughout the week, and then I can go and sort it as I'm planning the show. But I nearly lost all the work from this past week when the Notes app didn't quite work for me as I expected it to. Now, when you use the iOS share sheet to add a link to a webpage into a note, it gives you a nice little bubble preview of an image of the site and shows the name of the page and the domain name. But unfortunately, sometimes it duplicates these links for me. It'll show a couple of them in a row. And it also has this weird bug where if you add a bunch of links to a single note, like I do, I sometimes I have 50, 60 links in there, some of them will disappear or they'll kind of shift up and down as you scroll. You'll see a bunch of blank spaces and then you try to delete them and then it'll, everything will jump right up. And it's really frustrating, especially when you're trying to edit and sort things through everything. And I keep all of my links in kind of a big giant blob of a list. I just kind of add through as I go. And then I scroll through deleting. Okay, I don't want to use that one. I'll edit that. Maybe I'll use that next week. And I kind of move everything over to a separate note for the episode that week. I kind of hold everything in one note and kind of edit it together. Unfortunately, this week, I decided trying to use iOS 11's new feature drag and drop and I was dragging and dropping the links between the note I had the big blob one and the episode 16 note and I was dragging and dropping and dragging and dropping and as I was going I was deleting them from the blob app so that I would know you know which ones I've sent over and which ones I haven't Little did I know that I was dragging them into oblivion, as none of them were being saved into my second note. They were simply poofing away, gone, vanished. And the animation for the poofing away, it's much like when you drag something out of the macOS dock, it just wasn't big enough for me to notice it until I had already dragged and dropped them all. And my big mistake was deleting them from the blob note as I went, because once I was satisfied that I had pulled out everything I wanted to use this week, I went to take a peek at the other note and quickly realized that nothing... I'd been saved. I quickly switched back to my blob note, but of course, you know, notes only allows you to undo until you switch to a different note. After that, your note changes are finalized. They're locked in, and changes are uploaded to iCloud. And you're either going to win the million dollars or lose four hundred sixty-eight thousand and go back to thirty-two. Wait, I think I've been programming my "Who Wants to Be a Millionaire" game too much the past couple weeks. (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, you know, there's really no way to revert a note back to a previous state. I I know some of you out there thinking, maybe you know, why are you using the Notes app like this? But it's free. It's built into all of my devices, and I like the design. It works well. It's good enough for what I use. Why should I have to go seek out a a third-party app when I can just use what's built into my devices? The only way that you can possibly recover that data, as far as I can tell, is to be quick and to grab a secondary device that hasn't yet synced those changes from iCloud. So what I did was I grabbed my iPhone, and I attempted to do this. I switched it into airplane mode to cut off all communications, And I opened up the notes app, and wait, 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 what's going on? Hold on, everything's syncing. What are you, uh, I put you in airplane mode. That's right. It left Bluetooth and Wi-Fi on, because they're being used, which meant it still was connected to my WiMAX router, which means that it had synced the changes. Well, there goes that idea. And all that work, I had spent all that time sorting everything, and you know, I went to eat lunch, resigned to the fact that I was going to have to try and search for or remember all the links that I wanted to use for the show this week, when it occurred to me that I had a perfectly good notebook sitting there running macOS that was most likely offline. I might be able to recover some or even all of the deleted content. And that's exactly what I did. I managed to grab most of the links that I had put into that blob, and then I saved them to a second note, turned WiMAX back on, and synced everything everything back to the cloud. Woo, podcast saved. Still, you know, a lack of versioning or a way to recover lost data, you know, it really kind of feels like a ticking time bomb, you know, one one false command A and a delete and all of a sudden you've lost everything you've done. It really kind of scares me. And, you know, combine that with the fact that I just kind of feel like there's general bugginess from the Notes app this time around, it makes me think I might really need to switch to a different app. And I'm not sure what I should move to. You know, I love the simplicity of the Notes app, having cross-platforms, support, low costs, and no subscription fees, and especially having good updated support for advanced ios features except for drag and drop apparently is really important to me i'm going to take a look around and report back what i find so if you have any advice or suggestions on where i should move my show notes and stuff especially my big blob of links send it along on twitter at kayley k-a-y-l-e-e-d-a-y-o so i can find it anyway i've got a massive massive show for you this week i'm really excited it all just kind of came pouring out and i don't want to waste any more time so let's just get to the news We'll you Line Mobile announced last week that it has entered into an agreement for a strategic alliance with mobile carrier SoftBank. Now SoftBank is going to invest in Line Mobile, and the two will use their business alliance to promote the MVNO business. This transaction is scheduled to be completed around March of 2018, with Line having 49% of the investment ratio compared to SoftBank's 51%, and this effectively makes Line Mobile a company that is controlled by SoftBank. More details about changes to the service will come in the months ahead, and i I would expect at least a few big changes because until now, Line Mobile, which incidentally is my personal MVNO of choice, has been buying and reselling service from SoftBank competitor Docomo. And while an email to existing customers, including myself, informed us that we can continue to use our existing plans, how long that is going to last, and whether or not Docomo-based service will be phased out remains to be seen. For users who have a phone locked to Docomo, this could create some serious problems. If your existing service is terminated, you're going to be unable to use Line Mobile anymore as your phone is locked to Docomo and you'll need to get a phone that works on SoftBank's network. Hopefully there'll be a transition period that will occur over a longer period of time to give users the chance to buy a new phone or migrate away. At least for me, since I have an unlocked iPhone, I can always jump ship back over to Mio or somewhere else. And as a user, I I can't say I'm excited about this per se as I personally prefer Docomo-based MVNO service but as someone who runs a podcast it sure is interesting and I'm really intrigued by how the MVNO competition is heating up. KDDI, the parent company of mobile carrier AU, has announced a series of LTE service plans that are targeted at Internet of Things, or IoT, devices. Now, the three plans, LTE low, mid, and high, have minimum costs of four hundred. dollars 500 and 600 respectively, and these max out at 1200 yen, 2000 yen, and 2900 yen. The more data you use and the higher the speeds you need, the higher your rate goes. It caps out at a maximum of 2900 yen, and that's for unlimited. Uncapped LTE data. The LTE low is intended for sensors which collect basic data over the LTE network. LTE mid might be useful for having many devices in somewhere such as a factory and having them all aggregate their data and upload it at the same time. LTE high is intended for image monitoring, surveillance, crime protection tools, basically devices that need to be uncapped as reliable as possible and that are expected to use a lot of data uploading and downloading things like audio or video. Video or images. All three plans are available from KDDI right now. After the massive theft that Japanese cryptocurrency exchange CoinChecked, which halted operations after the incident, the virtual currency girls that idol group I talked about a few weeks ago that has cryptocurrency as their theme, they've announced that they are standing by their theme. See, the group agreed to only be paid in cryptocurrency, and both tickets to the shows as well as merchandise can only be purchased using cryptocurrency. But with Coincheck suspending operations the girls can't get paid. Now the girls have been offered by their promotion agency to be paid in yen, but apparently they've declined this offer, instead opting to remain loyal to their theme and wait things out. Until things settle down and transactions resume, they can't receive payment for their merchandise, which I assume they're gonna stop sale of, or ticket sales but they are going to continue to perform as scheduled. Now, this is pure speculation on my part, but honestly, knowing what I know about the idol world, I would imagine that management really pushed them hard on this one, and since the girls may be worried about being cut from the group if they fight back— they may have simply just went along with what their manager said. After all, they seem to be contractually obligated to receive payment in cryptocurrency. And in the idol world, I mean, there are some crazy clauses. AKB-48, one of the most dominant players in the idol scene over the past decade, has a romance prohibition ban. And this prevents members from dating. Contractually, they are not allowed to date. If they get caught, they can be suspended or kicked out of the group. This has happened a few times. Frankly, the whole... we all offered to pay them in yen, but they're sticking to their belief of cryptocurrency. Smells of the promotion office spinning things. Not to mention that this is a way to use the admittedly very bad mark against Coincheck and the whole idea of cryptocurrency as a whole, almost like a storyline, if you think about it like a soap opera. Maybe I've just been watching The Young and the Restless too much anyway. But nonetheless, um, if you think about it kind of like a storyline where the fans are involved in the lies of these idols, they've, they've been knocked down, but they get up and Wait, that's a different group. Uh, but, you know, this gives fans a reason to root for them. It gives the fans a reason to cheer them on. And despite whatever troubles are going on and any controversies, it gives them a reason to go out and see the show. And it keeps them relevant and in the news, frankly. After all, you know, people love a good comeback story. Just like Mariah and Tessa, huh? Anyway, all told, by the way, hackers managed to steal the equivalent of $530 million U.S. from Coincheck, making it the largest theft of its kind. The Japanese government has gotten involved and is supervising Coincheck's response to the hack. You know, I wonder if that response is going to include sending a few members of the government to see a show by the Virtual Currency Girls. But it, it it's research. Honest. Wakayama Prefecture is south of Osaka, and it can be a fairly, well countryside kind of place. And with more and more people shopping online now, it figures that sooner or later, something like this was bound to happen. Wakayama Electric Railway in Wakayama City and Yamato Transport, who operates delivery service Kudoneko Yamato, or Black Cat Yamato, has announced this week that they will begin a service aimed to both use some of the vacant train space available as well as reduce the truck fuel costs for Yamato's deliveries. The service will see Yamato delivery employees load the train up with packages via hand carts, and then the employees themselves get on. Then everyone, including the packages, rides to the destination districts, and then they load everything from the train onto the electric bicycles, which just happen to be mounted onto the rear train car, and they ride their bikes out for delivery. This gives the railway a new source of revenue, it saves Yamato money, and they're estimating it can even reduce the amount of time that delivery takes. After all, since the district they're talking about is so densely populated with houses, delivering the packages... Packages via bicycles makes the most sense from an efficiency perspective because it can save as much as three hours of time compared to using standard delivery trucks. The service is scheduled to begin on February 16th. In Japan, in accordance with the law, most electronics and devices must display what is known as the PSE mark. Now, PSE stands for Product Safety Electrical Appliance and Material. It's also known as the Denki Yohin Anzen Hole in Japanese. Anyway, on February 1st, it was announced that the interpretation of this law has been revised following a one-year grace period as of February 1st, 2019, mobile batteries must display a PSE mark to be lawfully sold within Japan. Manufacturers are also required to confirm that devices comply with the technical standards of the Electrical Appliance and Material Safety Law, as well as preserve inspection records. Lithium-ion batteries have always been subject to these kinds of regulations, but mobile batteries were not considered a product that was subject to such regulations. But, as mobile battery sales and usage increases year after year, so too have accidents. Now, the hope is that these new regulation interpretations will lead to fewer accidents and fewer faulty products, although prices are expected to rise due to the cost of manufacturers becoming PSE compliant. So if you want to get a new mobile battery for less, it might be a good idea to do so sooner rather than later. Hey, speaking of mobile batteries, this seems like a great time to talk about a product that I really love and one that has become my personal battery of choice, the Anker PowerCore Fusion 5000. This thing is amazing. Now, as the name implies, it gives you 5,000 milliamps of power, which is enough to charge an iPhone almost two times. It's light and compact, it comes with a little pouch to hold it in, and it has two USB-A ports for charging two devices at once. But where this thing really shines is that it comes with a built-in wall plug. It actually kind of reminds me of a MacBook charger. You simply fold down the wall plug, and you can use it directly as a wall charger, plug it right in. While the battery does have a micro USB input for charging the battery, it can also be charged directly by just plugging it into the wall. It's so simple. You can even charge your devices and get a bit of a trickle charge to the battery at the same time. It's really neat, and it reduces the amount of things you need to bring on a trip. Instead of both a mobile battery and a multi-port wall charger. Depending on your needs, you may just be able to bring this and get along fine. It's also great as a day-to-day battery for day trips or for those times when you'd like to charge at a cafe or somewhere. And this model of Anchor battery comes in three colors now. Apparently, I was really surprised. Black, which was the standard model up until recently when they released a white model. And now, and this is literally in the past few weeks, they've released this, a brand new red model. Ooh. It retails for $2,799. 99 yen on amazon japan though i was able to buy one over the holidays for 2,099 yen which was a savings of 700 yen and they go on sale from time to time so just keep an eye out for it if you don't need it right away it's a good thing maybe keep it in your cart and see if it goes on sale and if you're interested check out my link to buy it on amazon japan in the show notes Nintendo has announced its Switch Online service, finally, for release in September of this year. Now, more details will come soon, but the current plan is for the service to cost 300 yen if you pay monthly, or 2400 yen if you pay for one year up front. The service will include multiplayer online gaming of Switch titles, as well as access to exclusive discounts, a dedicated members-only smartphone app, as well as access to the quote, classic game collection. The title's a work in progress, but it's expected to have games from the consoles of the past, such as the Super Famicom, and these are expected to be enhanced with online multiplayer modes. So imagine playing some of the classic games from that era online on your Switch Oh, I'm so excited. Also announced this week was Mario Kart Tour, a new Mario Kart smartphone app scheduled for release in March of 2019 as a follow-up to some of Nintendo's previous smartphone offerings, such as Super Mario Run and PokeMori, or as folks call it here, Doubutsu no Mori, Pocket Camp, which is Animal Crossing Pocket Camp. Now, one thing it won't be a follow-up to is their MitoMo app, which was Nintendo's attempt at a mi based SNS service. That's going to be shutting down on May 5th. And in a side note, Dolbuts no Mori actually means animal forest, though I kind of like the name they ended up going with better let's take a trip back in time to the late 1960s, and that was when Sazae-san, a show about a Japanese housewife and her family, first aired. Actually, it was October 5th, 1969. Now, this show is one of the longest-running TV shows of all time. In fact, since it's an anime, it holds the Guinness World Record for the longest-running animated television series. That's pretty cool, right? And it continues to air every week on Sunday nights at 6.30, having aired thousands of episodes to Date has a lot of fans from old to young, all generations. It's one of those shows that everyone can watch. Why am I talking about this on a tech podcast? Well, let me explain. From the very first broadcast, the primary sponsor of the show has been Toshiba. Toshiba, right? And they have included product placement even within the show itself sometimes. But due to restructuring within the company, as of March... Toshiba is no longer going to be sponsoring the show. Now, many were concerned that it would finally end its incredible run if a new primary sponsor could not be found. Well, (laughs) being as popular as ever, a new set of sponsors was quickly found. Actually, there were about 10 companies that were vying for it. And after a selection process, they picked a few companies, including Baby Goods mail order shop Nishimatsuya, as well as home builder Daiwa House. and, And this is why it's on the podcast this week... Amazon Japan. That's right. In perhaps a move seemingly appropriate for the times, as one tech giant retires its sponsorship, another steps in to take over. And since the show has a history of featuring Toshiba's products in the show itself, it'll be interesting to see if suddenly Sazae-san starts talking with an Echo Dot instead of going to the supermarket, or reading books on her Kindle instead of reading them on paper. And what would be really interesting is if Amazon got reruns of Sazae-san for Prime Video, though I seriously doubt that will ever happen, since the creator made it very clear before her death that she didn't want any home video releases of the show. Maybe that's so they can reuse the same plots every 10 years or so? Regardless, I'm glad the show's gonna be sticking around, it's nice to have some family-friendly content out there, and if you're curious to learn more about Sazae-san before the new sponsorship rolls begin in April, check out a fantastic article about the longest-running animated series in the world in the show notes. Murata Yusuke, who is the artist behind the very popular manga One Punch Man, will be working with producer Bob Gale on an upcoming manga adaptation of Back to the Future, which will include new story material that didn't make it into the theatrical cut. This new adaptation will be called BTTF, and it's going to be serialized online with collected print editions to be released in Japan at a later date. You know, the artwork looks really cool. It's interesting to see all the characters you know and love from the films drawn in such a unique and Japanese art style. Some of the details about the manga are kind of unclear at this point, as it appears from some of the artwork that was released that this adaptation will feature characters from all three films of the trilogy, though some reports indicate that it's only going to be an adaptation of the first film. We're not sure yet. There's also no word on when, or if, this will be released outside of Japan, though I would imagine that with publisher IDW having the rights to the Back to the Future comics in North America, seeing it released abroad in England English is only a matter of time oh you know I had to go there and speaking of Back to the Future, despite having lived in Osaka for a long time, I've never once visited Universal Studios Japan or USJ as we call it in Japanese, which is located right here in Osaka. Actually, when Back to the Future the ride finally closed a few years ago, it was almost enough to tempt me into going, but I just couldn't justify the cost. I mean, it's really expensive just to get in, and then there's all sorts of stuff you you have to buy or spend additional money on when you get there. And you know, if I had friends to go maybe I'd just buy a yearly pass, but still, I don't know, I just have never had enough motivation to go visit." Until now, that is, as USJ has finally unveiled plans for something that is a must-see, at least for me, a Sailor Moon 4D attraction. Sailor Moon The Miracle will be a brand new, original 20-minute 4D adventure, much like 4DX or MX4D or whatever the heck it was called. And it's set to include splashes of water and things like that, which will help make you feel like you're one of the senshi. And after you're done saving the world before bedtime, wait, uh, that's the wrong group of girls, uh, uh, punishing the baddies in the name of the moon, you can grab a bite to eat with some Sailor Moon themed snacks from the Sailor Moon Cafe, as well as take a souvenir photo with some realistic props, and even take home a piece of something from the Sailor Moon gift shop, which will be selling a bunch of exclusive merchandise. You can also pre-order an express pass, which will help you get ahead and meet Phil at the mat. No, that's the amazing race. It's going to help you skip the line and will also include some cool perks if you pre-order, such as a case shaped like Luna P, as well as a picture frame for your souvenir photo, and even a chance to get a special face-to-face quote-unquote miracle greeting from Tuxedo Mask. See what I mean? The miracle I think is that you make it through with any money left in your wallet because it's expensive, 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 expensive. And yet there's no doubt that I will inevitably find someone to go with me and find a time to go sometime between March 16th and June 24th. I just hope I can find something else to do at USJ to justify it. I hear there's lots of minions running around everywhere. It's train talk time! Oh yeah, and boy do we have a big one today. In 1903, the Osaka Municipal Transportation Bureau was established. It is the public department of the city of Osaka that's responsible for operating the municipal subway lines, the new tram, and the city buses. But come March 31st, it will be no more. Well, why March 31st? In Japan, the business and school calendar years run from April 1st to March 31st. Some major changes always happen on those two days with contracts beginning or ending, new hires coming in, people transferring out, retirees, and even brand new beginnings for some things. And that's certainly going to be the case for the Osaka Municipal Subway as it was announced this week that in conjunction with the privatization of the subway system, the name of the subway will change to the Osaka Metro. Now, this has been in the works for five years, as the first proposals were sent to the Osaka city government in February 2013. Last year, the final approval was given, and work began on privatizing the system for the upcoming fiscal year. The thought is that, with the subway possibly valued at over 600 billion yen, privatization could bring private investors to Osaka and help to revive Osaka's economy. Still, it's the end of an era for the Osaka Municipal Subway, which was established in 1930. when the Umeda to Shinsaibashi part of the red line, the Midosuji line, which runs north to south in Osaka, was open, Now the Midosuji remains the oldest and the busiest part of the entire Osaka subway system. In recent years, there's been a push to update the subway station branding, away from the long-used Helvetica-based signage, onto more modern design featuring the font, It definitely makes things feel brighter, easier to read, and make it look more modern. And one would assume, and hope, given how much money they've spent on this redesign, that at least part of this branding is going to be incorporated into the new Osaka Metro design. One thing that will definitely be changing, however, is the logo of the train system, as the new Osaka Metro logo will be an M for Metro based on a coiled ribbon, which would form an O for Osaka when you view it from the side how you're going to view it from the side, but maybe on an LCD or something, like an LCD screen in the station, they could have it be the O and it turns to the side and it's the M. So that's the only reason I would see that they would go for that. But nonetheless, it also has the Osaka Metro wordmark set in Gotham on a dark blue background. I'm kind of a font and design geek, though, so sorry about all that. Anyway, the most interesting part of this is that the Osaka Metro part is written in English with Latin characters, and that's also the official branding in Japanese, rather than Osaka Metoro in kanji or katakana or some variation. For example, in Tokyo, they have the Tokyo Metoro, and it's usually written with Tokyo in kanji, the Chinese characters, and then Metoro is in katakana, which is used for foreign words in Japanese. So clearly, by using English, they're planning for the future, as tourist rates are expected to continue to rise, much as they have in the past few years dramatically, Especially as we get closer to the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, it's only going to go up from here. And in fact, one of the articles I found suggested that much of the branding, including making the logo an M, is designed to make it easier for foreign tourists to understand and navigate the train system. But honestly, when I think Metoro or Metro, I think Tokyo Metro. The name just doesn't feel like Osaka. It feels too nice too clean, too perfect. We're rough around the edges around here and we like it that way. And take a look at the new logo and try and imagine a rebranding like this for something like the T in Boston, for example. There's something about it that just feels too big city, New York or Tokyo to me. You know, it's test season, right? So this might be on one of your tests. New York is to Tokyo as Boston is to Osaka. That's right. Anyway, I guess I'll get used to it, but I'm really kind of sad to see the old branding go. It had a long history, and there was something charming about the age of the parts of Osaka Subway. It was kind of quaint how old it was, frankly. You know, I guess we'll see how everything pans out when the changeover happens on Sunday, April 1st. After years of reluctance and a lack of options, subscription-based video streaming services have finally begun to get traction in Japan. And yes, physical video and music and comic rentals are still really big in Japan, but Hulu started the push in 2011, And with Netflix moving into the Japanese market in 2015, the floodgates opened and we have seen a rush of services come to light. Actually, some of you who are longtime listeners will remember that I talked about a bunch of these options way back in episode two. So check out that episode if you want a more thorough rundown of all the options you have and kind of comparing and contrasting. But what we have this week is some data on usage and subscription numbers. Literally, and I'm not even making this up, I squealed and jumped out of my chair when I saw this headline oh my god I'm so excited. Anyway, so according to a report by the Marketing Research Camp, 16.5% of Japanese residents use some kind of subscription video streaming service. And if this sounds kind of low, it's because it is. Compare that with numbers from the United States, which show that 53% of people use some sort of streaming video service. And it's very clear to see that Japan is still way behind when it comes to adoption rates. There have certainly been many homegrown streaming companies popping up, such as Staya TV which is from video rental chain Staya, as well as Yahoo Japan's Giao, AU's Video Pass, U-Mobile's U-Next, and Dokomo's DTV. Not to mention that premium cable and satellite channel wow, wow, which is sort of the HBO of Japan in a way, it's a little different. They've also begun offering an internet-based on-demand service. But it's those familiar players from somewhere beyond the sea that seem to have made the most impact on the Japanese market, though perhaps not in the order that you might expect. Coming in at number three on a survey of streaming usage is actually Netflix, with only 17.7%. Hulu is second at 25.4%, and this kind of makes sense to me in a way because they've partnered with many Japanese studios and networks to provide streaming of both reruns of classic programs as well as new ones after they air on broadcast TV. And with broadcast TV still being such a dominant player in the media landscape here, it would make sense that many users' first streaming experience would be with content they already know and want to watch. Netflix, on the other hand, while they've made strides with their original series and they also have some revivals which were on terrestrial and cable TV, such as reality show Terrace House and drama Midnight Diner, which was incredibly popular back in the day, and people loved it when Netflix brought it back, but generally speaking, Netflix and their content is still relatively unknown. Hulu had a four-year head start during a period when almost no one was streaming, and that they formed solid relationships with local media producers. And Netflix, in my usage at least, still seemed to have a lot more foreign and subtitled content as a, opposed to local Japanese content or content dubbed into Japanese. Though this may be due to the fact that I'm still leeching off my parents' international account rather than having a Japan-based account. So I'm wondering if they're showing me things because they're assuming that I want more English content as opposed to wanting more Japanese content. Frankly, I'd like a little more Japanese content on there, but nonetheless. Coming in at number one is, have you guessed yet? Believe it or not, it's Amazon Prime Video. I know, and this is not by a little. They won by a lot. More than double Hulu. 56.9% share in the survey. It's incredible when you compare that with the numbers that are coming out of the United States. Netflix takes the top spot in the U.S. with 50%. Amazon is in second at 29%, and Hulu brings up the rear at 14%. Now, having actually used Amazon Prime Video, I have to say, it's decent but the interface is still kind of lacking. You know, I love my Fire TV, but I tend to use it only for Netflix and Plex, mostly. Whenever I try to watch something through Prime Video, I always end up getting frustrated. You know, they separate dubbed and subbed movies into different listings, content disappears and reappears seemingly at random, and there just isn't as much quality content out there as compared to Netflix. Still, based on the price and the value of Amazon Prime in Japan, It makes total sense to me why these numbers are so high. Amazon Prime costs a mere 3,900 yen per year. It's like 40 hoonyakers, and that's more than half the cost of most other countries. And while this may be because not all of the Prime benefits that are available in other countries are available in Japan yet, they do keep adding new features, such as Twitch Prime and Prime Reading, both of which were recently added. That said... I wonder what would happen to these streaming numbers if Amazon Japan raised their prices. After all, many people subscribe to Prime because at that price, to be able to have free overnight and sometimes even same-day shipping, it's definitely a no-brainer if you shop a lot at Amazon. And Prime Video and Prime Music almost just kind of seem like extra bonuses it also makes it harder for netflix and other services to compete after all why would i want to pay an extra 650 or 950 or even 1450 yen per month when i can get a whole year of prime for under four thousand yen and it has free shipping and videos and music and books and magazines and all sorts of stuff one thing to remember also is that unlike many other countries roku Roku, right? I never know how to say that, because Roku in Japanese is number six. But Roku, the streaming platform that is very popular in other countries, is non-existent in Japan. Just not here. You can't buy one. And one of the biggest ways that people get into streaming is through Roku, especially on models such as TCL's series of 4K TVs that have Roku built in. But while TCL has begun selling models on Amazon Japan... None of their televisions include Roku or any smart TV functions for that matter. So what are your options for streaming boxes in Japan? Well, Apple TV is certainly available, but while the iPhone continues to absolutely dominate the smartphone industry here, streaming is still kind of in its infancy in Japan, and with a starting price of 15,800 yen for the base model and 19,800 yen for the 4K model, the cost remains a huge barrier of entry, especially considering that while iTunes movie purchases and rentals do exist in Japan... TV show purchases and rentals do not, providing even less exclusive content to try and sell Japanese consumers with. Now, Google's Chromecast is also available, but with none of Google's Nexus series of phones officially available for sale here, and with the complexity of casting That's where you have a video on a phone and then you push the button and you send it to the Chromecast and it pulls it down via a separate stream. So it's not like AirPlay where you're sending the video to your Apple TV. It sends a link and the Chromecast pulls it down from the internet. So you can keep using your phone. It's really cool, but it's kind of a large barrier of entry for many consumers because it's complex and doesn't work with all the applications. It's not as simple as just AirPlay where you just go, you swipe it up, turn on AirPlay and what you see is what you get and the iPhone kind of takes care of it. The Chromecast is fairly reasonable at around 4500 yen But I don't think it's very popular. After all, it's still not sold on Amazon Japan, and if you're paying for Prime, why would you want to seek out a Chromecast when Amazon offers such steep discounts on their Fire TVs and tablets? Then just look at the numbers. While the lowest priced Apple TV comes in at 15,800 yen for the non 4K model, the highest priced Fire TV that's currently sold on Amazon Japan is only 8,980 yen. And that model, the Fire TV 3, includes both 4K and HDR support, as well as a voice remote. Now, in some countries, Alexa is supported, but it's only voice search right now in Japan. Presumably, support for are will be coming alongside the official Japanese launch of the Echoes. Those are still invite only for the moment. Anyway, at Under 9,000 yen, that's almost half the cost of the Apple TV 4. And it is half the cost of the Apple TV 4K, if that's really important to you. And for folks who want something even cheaper, the most popular model is the Fire TV Stick with voice remote. And that's priced at 4,980 yen, making the barrier of entry into the world of streaming incredibly low. Now, this is a position that, at least in the United States... Roku Fills, they have models ranging from really cheap all the way up to premium models that have 4K and HDR and all that stuff. But you can get a very cheap streaming box if you look at Walmart, places like that, you know, probably 30 bucks something like that, if you look hard enough. And Amazon's offerings are very cheap too, but without Roku in the Japanese market, at least in my opinion, I'm nothing against the Chromecast, but the only simple, easy to use, and affordable streaming option is from Amazon. There are some Japanese-only proprietary boxes, but none of them have very good design. They're all kind of Android TV-based, and they're kind of meh. Now look, seriously, Apple, I know you do things your way, on your terms, but I kind of feel like it might be in your best interests, long-term to think about maybe trying to make a Fire TV stick-like product that comes in at under 10,000 yen and supports AirPlay. Even me, the self-proclaimed Apple fangirl extraordinaire, can't justify paying almost double the cost compared to the Fire TV. Now, if we were talking an extra 1 to 4,000 yen compared to the Fire Stick or even compared to the full-featured Fire TV, especially if it was a thin, easy-to-plug-in device, I might jump back to Apple TV land. And considering how well-loved Apple and their products are here, I'd imagine that many Japanese consumers would do the same. But once you get much past 10,000 yen, even for me, it's, it's hard to justify the cost. By the way, as if those Fire TV prices weren't low enough, Unlike the Apple TV, which rarely sees sales, both of these models regularly go on sale for Prime members, and I've seen them drop as low as 7,480 yen for the Fire TV 3 and a ridiculously cheap 3,480 yen for the Fire Stick with voice remote. At those prices, combined with the fact that the market's still very young, the Fire TV is easy to use and folks really like Amazon, I suppose it makes sense that, as of right now, the dominant player for streaming video in Japan is Amazon. Finally, speaking of Amazon's devices, I woke up Monday morning to find four pretty nasty blue and dark spots on the screen of my beautiful Fire HD 10. And I really love this thing. It's got a 1080p screen, and it's fantastic for playing videos through Netflix and Plex. I was really confused as to how this happened. I mean, I keep my device in a case, and that case has one of those covers that you kind of fold up into a little stand. And I usually put that inside a tablet sleeve for some extra protection. So it's doubly padded. And I used it on Friday with no problems. And then it was just sitting around all weekend unused because I wasn't here very much. So I really don't understand what happened. You know, maybe since I wasn't home much this weekend, and it's been really cold, 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 the temperature of my place maybe caused some kind of damage? I don't know. Or maybe it just kind of brought the damage to the surface? I'm confused. But regardless, I was none too happy about this. After all, I just got it in October. And while you can't really notice the damage on the home screen and when the screen is bright on darker screens, especially when I'm watching videos and there's a dark scene those circles stand out like a sore thumb. Well, since the Fire HD 10 comes with a one-year warranty through Amazon, I decided to see if they would repair it or replace it for me. It took a little bit to figure out how to initiate this process, and since I really hate talking on the phone, I fired up an internet chat with an Amazon rep. Now, my Amazon Japan account is set to Japanese, so I did this whole thing in Japanese, but I'd imagine, since they also let you switch it to English, that they offer chat or some kind of phone support in English, too. I haven't been able to confirm that, though, but it seems like that would be the case. Anyway, the representative was very friendly and responsive. I explained the situation, and he asked me to do a 45-second reboot, basically hold the power button down for 45 seconds until the thing reboots, just to make sure that it wasn't a software bug. Now, I knew that this wouldn't fix anything. I know LCD damage when I see it, but I figured I'd humor him anyway. Alas, a hard reboot didn't fix my damaged screen, imagine that, so he agreed to do a swap, and I would receive a new Fire HD 10 the next day, and I was instructed that I must return my damaged one through the... The post Office using Chakubarai, or Cash on Delivery, and I had 30 days to return it to Amazon. Well, that was yesterday, and I'm recording this on a Tuesday. Sure enough, I just got a brand new Fire HD 10 in the post, along with two things of oatmeal and a case of tuna that I have set for recurring delivery every month. Only Amazon, right? (laughs) Still, I have to admit, it was fairly simple, fast, and I'm pretty satisfied with Amazon's customer support. I hate that I had to go through the process anyway, but they replaced it and, and seems to be working fine, so I'm happy with it. You know, now that I think about it, recently I've noticed that it kind of also has been shutting down on me. I leave it in sleep mode, and then I go to turn it on, and I open it up, and then nothing responds. And then I power it on, and it powers on, And it had full batteries, so it's not like the battery ran down, but something had just shut down. So maybe there is a hardware problem with it. Still, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend the Fire HD 10 for folks that are looking for an affordable, higher-quality tablet for some media consumption. I'd also definitely recommend getting a case for it and keeping an eye on when your warranty expires, just in case. This was such a jam-packed show, and it's funny because all the streaming talk seems like a great way to kick off a series that I've been thinking about doing for a few weeks. Now we know there's lots of internet-based ways to cut the cord and get video content. Those are sometimes referred to as over-the-top services. But what about some of the top services? Is that what they call it? Some of the more traditional cable or satellite services that are still extremely popular among Japanese consumers. Is Skapa perfect for you? Or maybe Hikari TV would better Light Up Your TV Life. Is BS really BS? It doesn't mean what you think it means, trust me. What about broadcast TV? We can talk about that. And some of the really cool technology that's been around for years, allowing for mobile TV broadcasts on phones, tablets, and even in car navigation systems. Yes, and you see this all over the place. Man, I've got so much to talk about, not to mention that I might even find a way to tell you the legend of one of the coolest pieces of retro satellite and gaming tech, ever to come out in the history of electronics. And it's one that I remain a huge geeky fan of to this day. Look for all of this and more in the weeks to come. For now, if you can, please subscribe in Overcast or Pocket Casts or whatever podcast app you choose. it really means a whole lot to me. This show is also available on Apple Podcasts. And if you could rate and review the show, it'd really help me out. It would help out Discovery, getting the word out there. And you can find the show notes for this episode, if Apple Notes hasn't deleted them, at platypuspodcast.com slash geek Which is also where you're going to find links To all of my social media And if you have any comments, questions, concerns, topics Or you just want to chat about anything Especially Sailor Moon or Back to the Future I'd love to hear from you Please tweet them at me on Twitter With the hashtag So I can find them Until next week Bye bye See no Shuuu is a platypus podcast production in the name of the moon.